Voices. Hello and welcome to Foundling Founds. I'm Julian Brown and on today's show we'll be talking to Debbie Bright who has 28 years of fostering experience and is an ambassador for fostering for the Department of Education and also a star in the reality show The Only Way is Essex. I'll be talking to Debbie about her previous knowledge of children in care and being a foster carer before she became one herself as well as her own personal experience of being a foster carer and the relationship she has created with those she has looked after, even 28 years on. Furthermore, we will discuss some of the challenges of being a foster carer has on your own family, as well as the children you look after, and the media depictions of those in care, and the improvements, if any, that Debbie thinks she would like to see made at her other care review this year. So could you just tell us a little bit about you and fostering? You know, I mean, I've been fostering 27 years now. So um, most people know me as Debbie Towie, and they all think that Lydia's an only child. So they're very surprised when I tell them, no, I've got three other birth children, two long-term foster children, and then I fostered over 250 kids because they all think Lydia's the only child. Um, But no, she definitely isn't. Um, So, yeah, I'm still here 28 years later, and uh, it wasn't a path that I even thought about. I mean, I just went into it completely by fluke, um, but I really wouldn't have wanted to do anything else. I mean, that's just amazing in itself uh, to still be fostering 28 years on and after having over 250 young people. I wonder, did you have any experience of fostering before you became a foster carer? And what inspired you to become a foster carer? Right. So no experience whatsoever. I was always in the world of fashion since I left school Um, and um, I had my first child Georgia who is now 31 and the plan was that I was going to go back to work after I had Georgia and then I fell pregnant with Lydia my second child when Georgia was three months old so I was actually pregnant for two years I think they call it Irish twins don't they because they're born more or less in the same year I don't know why they call them Irish twins, I suppose, because Irish people have like, well, they used to have like loads. I'm half Irish, half Italian, by the way. Um, So I just had to sit and think, oh, my God, like I'm going to have to have maybe four or five years off work till they go to school. And um, the only, um, I'll be totally honest with you, the only time I've heard of fostering because I totally didn't really know what fostering was about, was quite negative because my mum and my young, her youngest brother, so one of my uncles, were sent to Wales to be fostered during the war. And they were quite cruel to them, you know, when they were sent to Wales, they used to lock them in a shed at the end of the garden and stuff. And so that was the only, you know, like if fostering come up in conversation, that's really the only time that I'd heard of it. And... Um, Went to a, um, actually it was Pizza Hut, would you believe, in um, Stoke Newington. I remember exactly the day and what happened. And I had George and Lydia in a double buggy and was waiting for a table. And there was a girl sitting next to me. I do not know her name. I couldn't sort of quite visualise her face, but she had about six children with her. And I'm one of these people who is really annoying to my children, but I do talk to everybody. 
So I went, oh, hi, like, do you want me to help you? You know, and we was all talking about the kids and stuff. And she said, oh, no, they're not all mine. I, I foster. I think she'd fostered three of them or something. So I went, oh, that's nice. I said, I'd quite like to do something like that while I'm off work. And um, she'd all give me your number because they're really short of foster carers. And I've never, ever seen her after that day. And I don't know her name. And I know nothing about her, but that lady that I met on that day in Pete's Hut changed my life completely. And this is why I'm a great believer in grab opportunities when they arrive, because if you don't, they're gone in the blink of an eyelid. And, you know, that it could have been something very magical, like what I've gone through, um, you know, so... I think it was two days later, a social worker called me and I'd forgot about it by then. You know, I'd ate my pizza and got home and forgot about it. And um, he said, oh, I hear you're interested in fostering. And I went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I met this lady in pizza. I told him, so, so can I come round and see you? And then the rest is history. Like 28 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> that, is, that is incredible in itself. I mean, completely by fluke, like you say, but... To be fostering 20 years later, it's incredible. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit to listeners about the process of becoming a foster carer. Because it's something that's not really known about. And I just wonder yeah. if you could explain a bit about that to us. Um, so, I mean, like most of you will be, you know, listening to this, you'd be thinking, oh, I'd quite like to do that. And the amount of people that I've met over the years that have gone, oh, yeah, no, I'd quite like to do that, but they don't actually do anything about it. They just, you know, say they'd quite. So anybody who is listening to this, you know, just find out more information. Phone up your local authorities you can go google google i'd like to be a foster care. there's 10 million websites on there um and the process is i mean it's not easy but then it shouldn't be because you're going to have some really challenging experiences they're all worthwhile but they are challenging um and when these children come into your home our home it's a family home um you know the greatest thing is to love them unconditionally and unconditionally means with everything that comes with it and so it's not an easy process it takes about a year for the full assessment to go through um they you do go on a quick training course of 12 weeks which covers Things from sexual abuse to um, contact with birth parents. So there's quite a lot of training, but it's it's not in-depth training. But after you're approved as a foster carer, then the training com commences where it's much more in-depth. So lots of support, lots of training. It's about keeping that desire to be educated because, listen, I... I still don't know everything, and this is 27 years later, um, and things change all the time. I mean, at the moment, there's masses of training going on, sexual exploitation and gangs. Um, so that wouldn't have been in the first lot of training because it wasn't so you know, relevant then. So think the world is changing at such a fast rate that you need to keep up as a foster carer. Um, so... Um, 
you know, you need to be open to that. You need to have an open mind. And I love learning and I love, uh, you know, that desire to, to help. So the most important thing you have to have if, you're, if you want to be a foster carer is a big heart. That's a must. Um, and a warm home um, where they feel safe. And um, flexibility is a must because whatever you might plan, that could go out of the window within 10 minutes. So you've got to be very flexible um, and non-judgmental, you know, just don't judge anyone because everyone's got their own story. One of the things you touched on in your response there was giving, providing young people with unconditional love. And a massive part of fostering, I guess, is building those relationships with young people. And I just wonder if, you could explain to some of the challenges you may face in doing that with young people who are coming into your home. Oh God, there's so many, so many challenges. I mean, um, you know, I've I fostered from babies where I've had stages of babies right through to teenagers. The first thing I must really, really emphasise is there's a massive, huge shortage of teenage foster carers. So. Uh, most local authorities and private agencies will have a bank of foster carers that want to foster babies. Of course we do, you know, who don't want to foster a baby? You know, that's, um, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and teenagers do come with all different challenges. So I think you just have to be very patient um, and you've you've just got to you've you've got to keep going you know sometimes you might feel exhausted with it but there's a massive void in their life you know that poverty of hope because that's what it is because they you know most of them lack that hope and vision of what can be um you've got to make sure that you find something because like I just said, everyone's important. Everyone's good at something. And it takes one significant person in anybody's life. And it doesn't have to be a mum. It doesn't have to be a dad. It could be a teacher. It could be a musician that believes in you. But it takes one significant person in your life to make a difference. And even if I don't feel that I can make a huge difference to that teenager's life you know I will keep looking until I find somebody that that can so a really recent example is um a teenager that I fostered and you know he was all over the place I mean I think I had more police cars at my house than I've seen in a lifetime that month you know and um he was an absconder um which meant that you know a lot of the times I was reporting him as a missing person um but he was a brilliant boxer, absolutely brilliant boxer. So instead of keeping be beating people up, like you know, I got him into boxing and um, you know, and taught him the discipline of life. And in life, you know, what I tried to teach him on a continuous basis is there's rules and regulations wherever you go, and that doesn't matter if you're in a restaurant, a home, a school, you know, you will always have to pay the consequences for your actions. And that's also a big void in a lot of these children's lives because they've lived like lives of chaos, you know? So it's, um, it's a massive, massive void that they have to realise that 
for every action we take, there will be a consequence to pay for it. And um, it's just getting to these kids that somebody finally believes in them. So there is a huge, massive shortage of carers for teenagers. And I'm sure there's lots of people out there that are listening to this that would be able to do it. And the rewards at the end of it are priceless priceless and i and i guess you touch on there the shortage of placement for teenagers uh, and and that and in 2018 you were part of a bernardo's fostering week campaign and there was an interview with the son that you did in which it touched on there being uh 7118 needed foster carers in the uk and i wonder if you know what the latest statistics statistics around that are and how we as a nation can encourage more people to become foster carers yeah I mean to be honest with you I would say that's probably doubled this year um, because of Covid um, Bernardo's reported to have an 80% increase in children coming into care over this last year 80% and um, you know people just aren't coping um I just I just feel that it is very, very sad what's happened this year, but I also think there's going to be an absolute tsunami of children coming into care when they go back to school. Um, as soon as the schools start opening, the referrals will be sky high, I believe, because Unfortunately, you know, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors, but a lot of referrals come from schools, massive amount of referrals, probably say 60 to 70% of referrals are from schools. So people are keeping an eye on the children, aren't they? Like whether they've got their dinner on their table, you know, lunchtime or... And unfortunately, we don't know what's been happening to the... Because social workers can't even visit the homes, so... Um, you know, I, 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 my heart bleeds for for what probably has been happening this year, but there is nothing anyone could have done done about it. But um, it's high at the moment. I would, you know, with an eighty percent increase already being spoken about at Bernardo's, I reckon that's going to go across all local authorities. And I think that does just go to show that like you say people don't know what's going on behind closed doors and you know mm. unfortunately covid has really highlighted that in many situations and this is another part of society uh, that we really need to focus on and see how we can you know benefit these young people um i wonder if do you think there are any improvements that could be made in policy and things to help young people in these situations you know or who are in the care system and how we can better their lives. You know, to be honest, for 27 years, we've been saying the same question. So the question you asked, I mean, I remember 27 years ago um, talking about it. Um, from my experience, I think things have definitely improved, you know, 100%. Um, as in the support offered to what it used to be, you know, at, at, you think it was only, can't remember how many years, but not that long ago, leaving care was risen from 18 to 21. So uh, I don't even think, I don't, can't remember how long ago, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe six, seven years ago. Yeah. We're after good with that. 
but it seems right six or seven years ago. So at 18, six or seven years ago, that was it. You have to, you have to leave care and you was probably put in supporting lodgings or a room somewhere. You know, they've got no idea how to finance their money. They've got no idea how to look after themselves because it doesn't matter what they say. I mean, I have this debate with social workers all the time. You know, we're meant to, uh, you know, there's, we're meant to prepare them. So a foster carer's, one of the foster carer's roles, as in um, a leaving care project role, is to prepare them for their finances and washing and eating what they eat and stuff like that. Nothing prepares you. Nothing will prepare you. I can do all the preparing in the world, but if you wake up in a room and look around four walls and there's no one to talk to, what can prepare you? Nothing. And um, and that's unfortunately what, what happened, you know, like years and years ago, you know, I would think probably the suicide rate of young males in particular was particularly high with leaving care because, you know, you're on your own at 18 in a big wide world and nobody loves or cares for you. You know, you imagine what that feels like. Um, and it is very, very sad, you know, and I knew one boy in particular who did commit suicide that I know of. Um, and he committed suicide on Christmas day because not, where was he going to go Christmas? He's got no family to go to. So they've risen it to 21. So they get an option now. So if you're 18 and you're in care, you'll have the option of staying put. So they would have a meeting and they would say, do you want to stay put and, uh, and you know, stay here till you're 21? Unfortunately, and it is very unfortunately, you know, there is quite a percentage of them that say no, because at 18, if you're told you can have your own room and live independently and you don't have to live with any rules, what are you going to choose? You can have a party every night in your room, can't you? Do what you want to yeah. do. And then what happens, I'll tell you exactly what happens, because it's happened so many times to me, it all goes terribly wrong. So drug, drugs come into it, drink come into it, sexual exploitation comes into it. And then at 19, they've got to pick up all the pieces because they've, you know, they've, they've, they're so rock bottom after a year. So do we give them the option? Well, you know, there's human rights, you know, they are 18, they are an adult, but my strong belief is that they really shouldn't be given that option because I've got four birth children and I know that none of them would be able to survive at 18 on their own um, without the support of an, an adult. So even if it's, you know, money or washing or food being taken in, they, you know, they have none of that. And although it's called supporting lodgings, you know, I'm, it's very limited, very limited. So, and I guess this is the wider conversation to be had with the care review this year. You know, last year we found out there were 10,000 unregulated placements for young people. Exactly. We're talking there about the struggle of young people who move on at 18 and the reality that actually a lot of societal issues such as homelessness, drink, drug, they use those as coping mechanisms because they are alone or they do feel vulnerable. There's some of the places that they put them in, you know, I mean, I just think, why would you put them in like you know they're horrendous so 
you know, if you think there's greedy landlords somewhere, like, you know, that are getting a fortune for squalor, because a lot of them are squalor. Yeah. And this is you another know? thing, I guess, that in ahead of the care review, that maybe we, we need to have a wider conversation on the accommodation we provide to young people who are leaving exactly. care and the places exactly. they're put into place. Yeah. But then, you know, I, 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 you know, I foster for an inner London borough and, you know, it's horrendous, some of the places that they have to go to. Absolutely horrendous. But, you know, it is an ongoing battle. It is an ongoing battle. It has got better, you know, like I said earlier, it has got better. But, you know... It's sometimes I think it's they're setting them up for a recipe for disaster, and I've seen it crashing down so many times, and had to pick up the pieces. You know, I've had so many teenagers ring me at nineteen or twenty and say, "Can you come and help me?" You know, and I turn up and they've got a carrier bag, um, and then we start the role of. I'm an advocate for them, so you know most of the social workers know that so I know what they're entitled to so you know I'm an advocate for them but they need somebody who's strong to stick up for them and say well no actually you're you're still responsible for this child till they're 21 so where are they going to go you know where are you going to put them and also you know if they I just advocate for them and I promote that as, as much as I can for foster carers who are going to take on the part of fostering it's not you're fostering a child for a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. You're fostering a child for life because that connection that you have should, you know, it shouldn't just be gone, you know, when the child moves home. You know, it, it, it they used to be, let me tell you, when a child moved on, whether, you know, they moved in, into a residential or they moved to, you know, they used to really try and not promote contact with the last carers. I've always fought for that. I don't know the reasoning behind that. Why is there reasoning behind, no, they move on quicker if they don't have contact? No, they don't. No, I don't understand that. But there was, again, another big, um, uh, another big paper written from Fostering Network called Connecting Carers or Connecting or Keeping Contact with Your Carers. I can't remember the title, but that's, that was released within the last two or three years, they worked hard on that. And the importance of foster carers um, remaining in contact because a lot of the time it is out of our hands. So if they are moved on, it's up to the social worker that will say, oh no, there's no contact now. So social workers need to be educated as well as the importance of keeping connected. And I guess the other importance of that goes to show in previous media interviews you've done is the is how that some of your ex foster children have reached out to you sometimes twenty years down the line, five or ten years down the line. And I wonder if you, yeah. you can share some of your experiences with that to maybe encourage young people at home who want to contact their foster carers. Yeah. So I had a child. Uh, placed with me I mean I'm going back years because of my history but she was placed with me her placement broke down and she was placed with me from the age of three would you believe the placement broke down I mean what child can play, break a placement down at three I've got no idea but it did <laughs> it happens and um, 
she come to me and uh, she stayed with me till she was 11. And then she went into a therapeutic unit at 11, uh, which was awful for me. But, you know, again, I can only advocate to a certain bit. And at the time, there wasn't a school that would take her. So we tried lots of different schools and they wouldn't take. So the therapeutic unit was because there was a school attached to it. And, you know, the law is you have to go to school. And I tried to keep in touch with her, but again, I, I had a lot of resistance from social services about keeping in touch with her. Um, I, I think I did try, I, it maintained for a year or so, and then I lost touch with her because she was moved from there again. That broke down. And the next phone call I had was, she was in hospital in labor and would I go up there and be with her while she had the baby? and that that was incredible an incredible moment because I held her hand even though she was swearing at me because she was in pain while she gave birth to a little girl so I held her hand and uh, she had a little girl and um, and then we just you know remained in contact since so um I'm, I was and I guess for that for that young lady that was really significant because otherwise she would have no been one else. her own yeah. And this, I guess, is the case for many care leavers who actually are in the world on their own. When things happen in life, it can be big or it can be small. They're often on their own. And it's a very important yeah. thing. Maintain those relationships. And that's that, that example. hundred percent. hundred percent. And that's why I've always fought, you know, with maintaining contact. And sometimes, it, you know, hasn't been able to or I haven't been able to get an address or a phone number. It's been quite hard for me, you know. And uh, so when they do get back in touch, you know, I, I you know, I'm, all of them, you know, they're with open arms. And uh, I remember a little, this actually was very recently because, you know, I'm on Instagram. So a lot of them can now, if they did lose contact with me and I've moved home, they can private message me, which is brilliant, because they go, I found you on Instagram. That's one of the good things of Towie, because they could reconnect with me. And uh, he, he, he did his private message, he said, oh, hi, Debbie. Um, my name is, oh, I won't say his name, but my name is, he was adopted. So he went for me and he was adopted with his two sisters. And to be honest, this is a really long story, but I didn't really connect with the adopted parents from the beginning, um, especially the man. I just, I just didn't, anyway, the adoption actually wasn't that successful, but he was, you know, he was, um, I mean, he must be 24 now, 22, something like that. And he said, do you, and I, fo I fostered him for a year, like a year before he was adopted with his two sisters. And um, he said, I don't know whether you remember me. And I replied, you always remember somebody who you love. Of course, I remember you. <laughs> and uh, and I, just, I just thought, you know, how could he not think that I remembered him looking after him for a year, you know? And he was, he was young, he was like two or three, I think, at the time. And it was lovely to hear from him. So, yeah, I think 
the one thing Towie has given me is that people can contact me because, you know, they can get hold of me easily on Instagram. So I have these private messages come through, uh, which is wonderful. One thing a foster carer must do is remember that, you know, you you're part of their journey, you're part of their history. You're part of the, you know, the little things that you might remember about them that no one else can remember. That is so important. So, you know, if you are thinking about fostering or you're listening to this and you are a foster carer, keep connected as much as you can. And um, if you can't, you know, then reach out to them, reach out. And I think that is very important. There is a new government pilot called Staying Close, which they've introduced for young people who are in care to keep in contact with carers. And I've used that myself. So it's very important to maintain contact. And so they can see you grow on your life journey as, you know, your parents with your aunties and uncles. So it's very important to have that support network. I just wonder, now looking back as in your time of fostering, how you find it sometimes... Giving extra tender love and care to a young person that may come in and the, the difficulties that that may bring into your family home, because I think that's something else people don't understand is how, you know, you've got to no. be able to time for all. And I think, to be honest with you, I, I really did, you know, beat myself up about that a lot when I was younger, um, because, you know, I expect all those who remember being in a classroom the ones that were really naughty or the ones that like demanded attention are the ones that got it. You know, if you was just quietly sitting in a classroom, you wouldn't have got that attention. And I used to really cry myself to sleep sometimes on this journey. Cause I think, what am I doing? You know, like this is really, this part is really like taking a lot of my energy. You know, sometimes I'd be absolutely exhausted by the end of the day. And I thought, what am I doing? Because, you know, like I'm looking after these children, but actually, am I damaging my own children? Because yeah. they might be playing and then there's a, a child kicking off or, you know, I've got a phone call, I've got to go to a police station or to a school, especially to a school, because I've spent half my life picking up kids from schools. Um and um I, I you know I, I will admit it like you know there's many a times I just thought I can't do this anymore and and you know I'm, I'm just an awful, I, you know I'm not gonna put rose tinted glasses on it you know I went to bed crying many 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 times and I kept going because there was always five or six children in this house there always has been like since George and Lydia were little so you know you have to bring yourself back to the fact that actually if you gave birth to five or six children there's still going to be chaos and arguments and that one's not going to like that one and she hates her and get out of my bedroom you're always going to have that so you have to bring yourself back to the fact just because they're in foster care it wouldn't be any different if they was your birth children uh the outside bit the schools and the police and everything would be different but the dynamics of the family wouldn't I just I just carried on and carried on and carried on and then Lydia was about 16 15 16 and I went to a parents evening and it was an English teacher so she's 30 now Lydia so that's this is 15 16 years ago and um, I was sitting there and I think I'd 
you know, I'd had a really rough day with one of the kids, you know, like he was refusing to go into school and uh, social services were coming round and things like that. Anyway, so I got to the parents' evening. I was very disheveled, like my hair was all over the place, not that it never is. I had my coat trapped on me. I was tired and I sat down and so she went, just, I must say, um, I actually really, really brought a tear to my eye when, when I read Lydia's piece on her English lesson. So I said, oh, I didn't know nothing. I said, I don't really know anything about it. So she went, oh, I asked her to write a piece about what was important. To her. Well, it wasn't just her, it was the whole class. What is important to you in your life? Um, and to write an article about it, like so it's being written for a magazine or a newspaper. I went, oh, what did she write? I had no idea at all because she hadn't said anything. And she said um, it was about fostering. So I said, oh, what's it? Now, Lydia, going back to primary school, she's always been a writer, Lydia. And I remember going into her class at primary school and reading a poem. The reason I'm telling you this bit is because I've missed this bit out. And her poem was, she was about six, I think, at the time. I wish, the poem was called, so it said, I wished there was no disease in the world. I wish that no one was poor. I wish no one died. I wished this, I wished that. So was, and then right at the bottom, she was six, she put, but most of all, I wished I was an only child. <laughs> so I thought oh my god I cried all the way home thinking oh my god she wants to be an only child like what there's all kids in the house oh my god like cried myself to sleep again then she's 16 there so let's look, roll roll forward she's 16 so 10 years later I mean it was a fantastic piece but the thing that I'm going to tell you and actually this I just thought I've it, it speaks of, you know, it spe speaks a million words. It said, for every hundred negative things I can tell you about fostering, there's a million positive ones to replace it. And I just thought, I've done something right. That's what I thought, I've done something right. The amazing thing is that foster carers sh should know that actually they they do an amazing job all of them and mm. anyone that works for young people does an amazing job and it's not an easy job as well that that's very important to get across because there are challenges that come with it within your family within yourself and you know within the young people you look after but it it can also be one of the most rewarding jobs like you just said there can be a hundred negatives but it, it can also be a thousand positives you know and that's incredible yeah, yeah. Previous interviews, you'll set out it's very hard to let go of young people. And I think that's mm. another thing people don't under understand is when it comes to letting go of a young person or they're moving on. And I wonder if you can explain a bit of, of the effect it had on you, but also your children, like you say with Lydia and your your other children, how that affected them when the children moved on. Right. So I started my fostering just doing babies. So I'd take babies from hospital until the adoption process went through mainly adoptions um, and then I started doing primary school and teenagers and then I got I was always full up you know with with teenagers and primary school so I didn't do babies and then the last 
six years, I went back to doing babies. And when they move on, in particular babies, and I think that's because, well, not I think, I know, they're dependent on you 24 hours a day. You know, you're then next to you. I mean, I've got a cot next to my bed now, you know. So you might pick them up from hospital at like three days old and then they're with you till they're a year, 18 months. So to then that baby move on is absolutely heartbreaking and it doesn't get any easier. People go, oh, yeah, but you're not. It doesn't. In fact, I think it's got harder because I think as you get older, you realise how, how precious life is. As you get older, your values of life differ from when you're younger. And um, I just, I know, now, I think the only way I get through it is I know the process that I have to go through. So I, I, in my mind, I know I've got to go through being broken hearted. And I know that that comes with anxiety and like you literally feel like your heart's breaking. But I know that when they move on, you know, some of these, some of these couples have been trying fifteen years for a baby, um, uh, same-sex couples. You know that have decided to adopt, and I know that I'm going to feel the joy later on. So uh, lately, not years ago, the adopters didn't keep in touch, but lately. Um, all the adopters keep in touch. And when they send me videos of how happy they look, and if I video call them and they don't really want to you know, talk to me because they're too busy cuddling their new daddies or mummies or mummy and daddy, then um, I think I've, I've done my job. You know, like they've been able to move on. You know, they've been able to move on to their next chapter of their life. And if I can lay the foundations strong enough for them to do that then I've made a huge difference so yeah babies don't get any easier um I mean older children I know that they're going to ring me you know that they, they go oh, I'll phone you or I'll video time you or I'll whatsapp you or you know or I phone them and go oh, you have, I haven't spoke to you for a while and they go I go what are you up to they go oh yeah no I'm doing all right you know and they won't never tell me the truth if they're not because they know that I tell them off but but babies are I must say that is heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking but I don't know whether you know this new um thing that's also introduced called foster to adopt have you heard that yeah well I'm just very anti that because I just think it's playing far too, this is playing far with people's emotions. And it doesn't matter what they say, because they're trying to convince everyone to foster adopt, don't. Because there's always that chance that someone will come forward. So we all know that the courts, you know, which is, you know, in a lot of cases, right, if a family member comes forward, then that child will be placed with the family, right? So you don't know that. And again, on being on uh, Instagram and having private DMs, the amount of heartbreaking stories that I read is honestly, I can't even tell, the volumes are just horrendous because 
these people have waited for a baby maybe for years and years and years and then they're told foster to adopt then you imagine if you think you're adopting that baby I prepare myself and have done but if it's an adopted couple and then they're just about to go through with the adoption and then a auntie or a third cousin comes forward you've got to part with that baby that you thought that you was going to have forever so I think it's quite cruel that the new I think it's cruel to people to do that because at least if they're fostered until they move on from the foster carer they know it's a hundred percent sure that all the legal documents have done and everything and that's their baby but to say that this is your baby and then eight months down the line it might not be it's horrific definite uh policy that needs to be looked into doesn't it because at the end of the day it's not just the emotions that come into it it's everything else that you put into that bond with that child and, and yeah just up eight months later and say right uh so and so's come forward who doesn't know the child but they're going to take the child anyway it yeah. just can't work like that and it's not not no. fair um I wonder, over your 28 years of fostering and fostering over 250 young people, if there are any kind of moments that really stand out for you or that are highlighted in you especially, whether it's when you welcome a new person into your home or something that just sticks out to you? Um, I don't know. I mean, there isn't anything, one thing. I mean, it's... It's a journey, you know, you think I've, I've, I'm honoured to have shared so many people's journeys. Um, and I think you have to be extremely open-minded because I can honestly say, not just me, but my family, my, children, my birth children, uh, you know, my nephews and nieces, you know, we're all a foster family. I'm not just, a, I'm not just one person we're a foster family we all give to that child as best as we possibly can do and I think for me you always I look back I've learned as much from them as they have from me and I expect my children would say exactly the same um I think the hardest thing I dealt with is acceptance it's a big word you know because acceptance is you have to accept that that person for who they are and who they want to be and you should never try and change that and you might have dreams in your head that oh, I, I, you know I want them to do this I want them to do that I expect it's the same for your birth children as well but going back to your question no all of it like all of it like if I think of the journeys that I've traveled even if it had been that I've travelled for a week with them or a year with them or an overnight with them, I've always said, if there's one thing that I've changed in their life, that's more than anything. You know, it could be, I don't know, a cuddle of a night, like where they've not really had a cuddle of a night or reading a book, could even be a reading a book. Like some kids have never had a book read with them. You know, some, some kids have never had sat down and had a book read to them. So it could be most of the time, not it could be most of the time, it's very small, significant moments. I think that's just amazing in itself because those small moments do stand out and they stay with those young people for a long, long time because they're so yeah. poignant and so, so special to them. I just wonder if we, along the process of the whole podcast, we've finished by asking 
people, if they could say something to young Georgian who are in care today, what would they want to say? But I would also like to spin it to you and what you'd like to say to foster carers or people who are wanting to become foster carers to end today's episode. Right. So my first thing is for those who are listening to this and they think, oh, I'd quite like to do it. Don't just think I'd quite like to do it. You know, dig a little bit deeper and find out as much information as you can. Um, you know, be very open, um, you know, ask what questions that you want to ask. But, you know, no training in the world or no books you read will ever prepare you for what a journey you're to sort of embark on. Um, and it's a journey of rocky roads and you climb many mountains and swim channels, but uh, it's worth it. You know, there isn't anything. Look at me. I'm sitting here on my bed 28 years later and there truly is nothing in this world I would have wanted to do other than be part of those children's lives. So, you know, please don't just think it. Go ahead and try. And, you know, I'm still here 28 years later, but there's been a lot of foster carers that I know that have done it for like four or five years or two years and they've enjoyed it, but they've decided that there's something else they want to do in their life. So don't think that you're good. You know, anyone's holding a gun to your head. You know, you do things how you want it. But even if you make a significant difference to one child in this world, you've achieved more than you ever achieved in a lifetime at anything else. So go ahead and try and do it. For the foster carers that are listening, every single one of you are heroes, you know, especially the challenges we've had this year with COVID, you know, we've had little support, um, you know, home tutoring from school, you know. So you're all heroes in your own world, you know, and, uh, and I applaud every single one of you. And uh, for the government, you know, there's lots of work still to be done and listen to the young people because they're going to be honest with you. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, Debbie. Um, we really appreciate the time <laughs> That's fine. And uh, big hugs to you all out there. I know we're not allowed to hug at the moment, but big virtual hug to you all. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you very much to Debbie Bright for coming on today's show and talking to us about her experience of being a foster carer and some of the challenges she believes young people face in the care system and have experienced throughout her time of being a foster carer and some of the policies she would like to see change in the future. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Coram's Voices Free Time Project, the National Lottery Heritage Fund and Rebecca Jones for supporting and help make this podcast. On our next show, we'll be joined by Joe Blyton, the Voices Through Times archivist, and Lucinda Hawkeys, who is an historian herself and the great-great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens, where we'll explore the history of the relationship between Charles Dickens and the Foundling Hospital, but also delve a little deeper into the relationship of Charles Dickens' work and the Foundling Hospital as well. I would also like to take this opportunity to personally say in relation to an earlier segment of the show to anybody who is suffering or struggling with mental health difficulties, please remember to reach out and that there is always support available and you're never alone. These 
The support available comes in the forms of charities such as Mind, Samaritans and Calm. You can find their contact details in our social media posts or online, but also remember to reach out to those around you. Until next time, take care.